Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Trials with Maya Z, brought to you by TrialHub, a data intelligence platform that helps clinical research organizations and sponsors plan clinical trials. This podcast is about how we can make clinical trials more successful and patient-friendly. I am your host, Maya C, and in every episode, I will be interviewing a leading expert from various industries in order to discuss some of the major challenges and brainstorm how we can solve them. Let's get started. Welcome again to Trials with Maya Z. I am double excited today because I have here uh, a lady that I met uh, recently, Esther Howard. Uh, Esther has more than 20 years in the clinical research industry uh, before she started her own company, Vaso. And there are lots of stories behind this company, lots of stories uh, inspired by her know-how, by her experience, and by her passion, and by her human being. So Esther, please uh, introduce yourself and um, tell us a little bit more about Vaso as well. Sure. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Maya. I'm excited to be here as well. Um, so as Maya introduced me, I'm Esther Howard and I'm the founder and CEO of Bezel. I started it just a little over two and a half years ago after a long career in the clinical research industry because I wanted to bring mental health support into healthcare and help people at a very personal level so that they can get through whatever journey they're going through, especially in clinical trials. And I live in Phoenix, Arizona, um, but I'm originally from Canada and I've traveled and lived all over the world. So I have lots of great stories and experiences and met lots of amazing people through all of them. Unfortunately, we don't have all the time in the world to, to listen to all these stories because they are um, absolutely incredible. And uh, we'll speak about one of the stories that actually made me invite you to this uh, to this episode today. And it's very much related to how we should be thinking uh, about clinical research and what can inspire us to, to make a change. But yes, there was a first about Bezel. Yes. So Bezel is um, actually, I could like to consider it a toolbox of support for people so that they have the tools that they need to get through what trials um, or tribulations they're going through in their life. So if a patient is on a clinical trial, their patient and their family, they can download the app and they can select the spheres of support that would be the most helpful in their life, starting with their family, their friends, um, neighbors, whoever that may be, but then add in also extra support. For example, if it's a home nurse or if it's a um, drug shipment that they need or diaries or anything like that. We don't collect clinical trial data. It's just to make the life of the patient easier while they're going through the trial. And it is an application that you can download on the phone. It's super secure and simple to use and to make it easier to communicate between their spheres of support and access resources and training and whatever it is that they, that they need. So we have a base model that is just nice and simple for everyone in the world to use, but then we curate them for the patients in each trial. Yeah. When I was introduced to you, Esther, our common friend said, uh, you need to get to know Esther because she's like you. She, she thinks so much about the patients, but I didn't know why actually you started thinking so much about the patient. And when we first chatted, 
with you, Esther. You told me about your friend and what you, how basically you came up with the idea of Bezel. So share with, with us, actually, how did you come up with, with the idea of Bezel and what really made you refocus not so much on your clinical research experience and background versus on how you can support patients? Yeah, sure. So to really tell the story of Bezel, I think that I need to um, be transparent and tell my own story first and then how that led to Bezel. Because mental health isn't something that we think about in clinical trials, even though every single person in the world has to deal with it in some way or another. For myself in particular, I grew up in um, a cult in Canada and um, I was in my late 20s, early 30s when I escaped from this call. It was like um, I made a decision to leave because uh, suicide was feeling like the only hope that I had. And uh, and I made the plan and I literally packed up my things and in the middle of the night escaped from the house with a backpack on my on my back. And um, so... You know, obviously, I had some support on the other side. Um, I had a friend that I had met, and she allowed me to to live in her home for a while while I got myself back on my feet. But it really took the power of people helping me yeah. to get back on my feet and to be able to move forward again in life and rebuild. And so, fast forward, um, I ended up a very successful career in clinical trials. Um, working for a CRO, and I um, ended up flourishing in life and and really loving my career. And so, twenty years later, um, one of my really good friends uh, died of colon cancer, and she was in her early forties. She had a two year old daughter, and um, we were we were very close. She and I had traveled the world together. We had gone on a trip to Israel. We were both skydivers. We had you know, smash the Virginia skydiving record together. We had a lot of history. And um, one day I was at her house about two weeks before she died. And I was just helping with, you know, things around the house. And we sat down on the couch together because she was having a good moment. She was able to have a conversation. She was in less pain that moment. Um, we sat down on the couch together with her daughter laying in between us. And, um, and she looked at me and she said, Esther, everybody sees me as a cancer patient. They bring me gifts that remind me of cancer. Everyone talks about cancer. Cancer is the main focus. And it's true, I am a cancer patient, but they forget that it's actually my mental health that I'm truly struggling with. And she looked at her daughter and she said, I'm about to die and leave my daughter behind without a mother. She's like, I'm going to leave you and my friends and my family. And, um, and she said, it's not like she was scared of death, but but, you know, death is definitely something that she had to embrace now. And um, the mental health toll on a young woman that's taking care of her, still wants to be a mom and a wife and a friend, and a sister and, a, you know, a daughter. Cancer is the least um, important thing in her life. And bringing her gifts that remind her of cancer, like hair, hair products and creams for your skin, isn't what's going to really help. So she told me the thing that would help her the most if it was easier for her to ask for help from her family and her friends. So she picked up her phone and she scrolled through it and she said, how do I even choose who to call? 
I don't want to use a group text message chain because that becomes really cumbersome. And when I do call somebody, then, um, you know, they might not respond. And so that I don't want to bother them. They might be at work. And it's just really difficult to ask for help. And then she said, on the flip side, people offer help, but they say the common phrase, let me know what you need. And that's what we have to say to people. We we have to yeah. do that because we don't know what else to do. She said, just wish they knew more proactively the things that they could do to help me without me even asking or, you know, maybe offer more directly the things that they can do so that I'm not managing my own care. And she said, these are the things that would strengthen my mental health and help me get through each day. And so when we had this conversation, everything flooded. Like it was a very emotional moment for me, not just because I was losing my friend, but because I had realized what she just described is exactly how I got through my own mental health journey and still do to this day. And so that's when I got to work and I called a friend of mine who was a software developer and he and I literally on his dining room table started sketching out how we could make spheres of support, make it easier for people to ask for help and empower others to offer help and just focus on the patient and their families and the people around them and and not be so encumbered by the details of everything else that also needs to happen. But um, but really focus on this gap where we don't think about um, the patient's lives. Esther, I wonder uh, now that you went through like this whole experience, which is horrible, and I'm pretty sure that many people can recognize themselves in, in your shoes one way or another. Um, I wonder, having spent 20 years in clinical research, but then going through this story, did this experience really change the way you're looking at clinical trials? And how would you now? change because obviously you're no longer a part of the clinical research industry, at least not directly. Uh, how would you change clinical trials now? How would you change the way you've won clinical trials before, you've managed clinical trials before? What would be the, the top three things that you're going to change? Yeah. So, well, first of all, I'm, I'm very much still part of the clinical trial industry, just in a different, different way, um, part of um, the patient's lives instead of the protocol writing and you know the protocol execution like I used to be. Um, but I don't forget about those things because that's still important. First of all, um, the thing that I would change is uh, focusing more on the patient's lives. We hear it all the time. We hear people talking about patient experience, the voice of the patient, um, the patient's lives. Those are great buzzwords. But um, being more tactical and truly listening to the patient is a one step further than just interviews of patients and what they say about a clinical trial experience. I'm not knocking any of any of those things that we already do, but I'm just saying we should take the patient experience one step further and make it more personal for them so that we recognize if we have a clinical trial and it's composed of, you know, let's say it's just a phase one small, small trial with, with 20 people in it, that's 20 different lives. It's every single person is coming up into that trial with a different perspective. So we have to acknowledge the complexity of that and be more supportive of their lives so that they can participate in the trial. They want to participate in the trial. People don't not show up for their visits because they just don't feel like being at that visit. 
something came up in their life. And so yeah, I think that there's a lot more we can do in the industry to really support the patient's experience, not forgetting about the fact that they have family and friends and other people that also participating in that trial with them. And I think we can do a lot better of a job supporting the patient experience. And that strengthens mental health. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm listening to you and at the same time I'm thinking uh, because, uh, uh, you know, I'm having similar conversations with people that are on the site, uh, site, for example, like working as investigators or coordinators or CRAs. And they would tell me, for example, hey, we need to consider the, the site's perspective and their experience. And it's about how do you balance that and how do you make that operationally? Because there is another, um, uh, another conversation, another discussion around decentralized vehicle trials, for example. And um, the discussion there is how do we create a protocol with decentralized trial components or let's say like more remote um, capabilities, but still address that some people would prefer to be more at the site and others prefer to be at home and so on and so forth. So you've been in the operations before, like any practical hint, uh, any practical advice, how can we really address the patient's needs, the site's needs, and make that operationally possible? Is that even possible? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah it's definitely um, a hot topic and, and one that I actually love. So first of all, if I think back on all the times that I helped take a protocol and operationalize <laughs> it and, and get it out, get it out there. I can think of a lot of mistakes that I made. One was we didn't bring the right stakeholders to the table when we were designing the um, the operational strategy. Now, obviously, it would be impossible and impractical to bring every single site to the table to have a say in how we are going to operationalize the protocol. You can't do it that way. But we still have ignored the sites completely when when we do it. So there can be site representatives that can be part of the team that help us operationalize the protocol. The other thing that I was thinking about um, just recently was that, like, if you look at the evolution of technology in clinical research, how we are using technology better now to decentralize trials and to make trials easier and cheaper and faster and all that good stuff. But um, one thing that I think we need to start changing our conversation on is less about how do we decentralize a trial? More about how do we use the technology and the things that we've learned in this last decade and solve a specific problem? So when people ask me what I think about decentralized clinical trials, well, of course, I love the concept, but I don't really talk about DCT trial. Like, I don't talk about it like that anymore. I talk about an oncology trial. I think, okay, we've got this phase one breast cancer trial that is for, you know, a small group of women and just start solving the actual problems and then looking for the tools that can help us solve the problems better rather than take these tools and go look for problems. And, um, and I think that because we have all of these DCP companies out there right now that have all these great tools and they're out there looking for problems and they're, you know, fantastic. I am friends with all of those um, founders, but, um, but they're looking for problems rather than it being the other way around where we have, um, the sites and the sponsors collaborating and looking for the tools that they need to solve the problem. So it just needs to be flipped 
in conversation. And then I think that we can get further faster that way. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you find this topic relevant, you'll find it helpful to book a demo with our team on trialhub.com. Since 2019, we've supported more than 3,000 clinical trials with country, site, and patient feasibility. We'd love to show you how and help you get your trial right from the start. And now, back to my guests. Mm. Um, and you mentioned, um, like, speaking with different stakeholders, you mentioned the site, but you didn't mention this, the patient. And I will go back to my question, how do we, like... Take their like take them into consideration, uh, and um, how can we operationally take their input? Uh, because I know it's very difficult. Uh, a lot of the clinical trials that I've seen uh, may have an advisory board of patients and patient advocates. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they, that may be uh, like a group of advocates just from one country, though they may be covering ten plus countries. And do you any advice on how can you? Uh, make sure that you take the patient's input in the best way, in the best format possible and make it operationally possible to really consider their needs and expectations. Yeah, it's even harder to get all of the patients to contribute to a trial, just like it's hard to get all of the sites to contribute to a trial, right? But here's the thing, we're all patients. So the voice of the patient actually should be coming from the people that are already designing the trial. We are already all patients. And if we hmm. think about ourselves that way as a starting point, it's amazing how we can change what we do. My favorite story um, to tell people is about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I took a protocol and I was designing the operational strategy for it. And within the protocol, they wanted to collect a stool sample from the patient at 2 p.m. every day. Okay. So think about the challenge of, of collecting that stool sample at that time every day. What person, what human being is going to be able to, to deliver this sample at 2 p.m. every day and in what time zone? And um, so I read it and I thought it was a joke. I, it was not April 1st, so I knew it wasn't a joke. And, and I asked, I asked, I was like, how is this possible? And they were like, well, that's what we need. And I said, well, are you able to deliver a sample at 2 p.m. every day? Like, we just need to think about our yeah. own lives when we're True. designing these protocols. That's a really great starting point because, yes, we want a, the patient voice for sure, but we are all patients. We've all gone to medical appointments. We've all had sure. medical challenges of some kind. But most importantly, we all have personal lives and we're all human beings. And so there's a common thread of commonality there that we're not even thinking about our own lives as a patient when we're doing it because we're so caught up in the science and like the rigor and the stats and, you know, the things that are um, rigid and not human. And so start there. And then there's so many amazing companies out there that are doing a good job of talking to patients and asking about their experience in clinical trials that have already gone through them and that what they would like to see different. Um, and I think those voices need to be elevated as well. There's not a lot, a lot of investment in taking advantage of the people that are out there getting those patient voices already. Um, hmm. But going back to the sites, 
the sites have the finger on the pulse of the patient voice too. And they're the ones that are seeing the patients every day. So I'm pretty sure the sites are going to have a pretty good sense of, of what the, their patients are going to need if we give them the opportunity, the tools, the budget to be able to, um, to do that. And I mean, for example, um, for bezel, I'm running a clinical trial right now myself with Dr. Patel at Carolina Blood and Cancer Associates in, in South Carolina. Maybe. He has a rural oncology clinic um, in like South Carolina where there's not a lot of resources around for those for those patients. Um, they all come from non-technology homes in in the um, I don't know in the boonies basically, and uh, he knows his patients so well. I don't need to go to his patients and ask them what they need. I just need to ask him and his nurses what his patients need to be able to participate in these trials and give him what he needs. It's, it's really not complicated. I think we've also overcomplicated this patient voice and patient experience question because we've never paid attention to it before. Yeah, I agree with you. It's not a rocket science. And at the same time, it is because... Um, I've been in, uh, involved in multiple projects for site selection, for example, and mm -hmm. most of the questions are not who has a better connection with the patients or who from the investigators is spending most time with the patients. Uh, the questions are around who is the key opinion leader or who has done more, more research in the past. So it's great that you spend some time to find the right principal investigator or just investigator, uh, uh, that really spends time with these people and knows them well. But in reality, most of the site selection doesn't go around who has better connection with patients. It has different criteria, completely different criteria, not mentioning the recruitment rate, like here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point and a great idea. Yes, let's change the site selection questionnaire too. <laughs> 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 That's a whole new topic. Um, but I want to bring it to another story that you told me, which I think is also inspiring about the way we can uh, address different challenges that we have in the clinical research uh, industry. And now uh, I will refer back to diversity. Again, a big trend. Uh, again, a buzzword and everything. But you gave me a story how you would address diversity Again, with Bezo, uh, something that you did not for the sake of clinical trial, but actually can be a great idea. What we can, we can do with clinical trials, especially when we're looking for specific population. So Esther, can you tell us more about what you did with, on, with, with this project? Because it's really inspiring. Um, so actually, another little fun fact about me is that I'm half Gwich'in, which is a uh, from a northern native indig indigenous tribe in Canada. Um, we like to joke and say, don't confuse us with Eskimos because we're indigenous natives. We're not Eskimos, um, but we love our Eskimo compatriots that live in the same town. Um, but if you get on um, a map and look um, in, at the mass of land of Canada, so United States, there's this big mass of land above you and it's called Canada. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not just where the cold weather comes from. Yeah. And, um, and then on the West Coast, there's a river that goes all the way up to the Arctic Ocean, and it's called Mackenzie River. And that's where my family is from. My mom lives there currently. And, um, and it's, there's a lot of small communities all up that river, um, all up into the mouth of the Arctic Ocean. And, um, and all of those people um, need 
healthcare, just like the rest of us in the world. And they have healthcare, they have clinics up there. Um, but one thing that they have that people don't realize is they have the internet and um, they have access to technology and it's very good. There's nothing wrong with it. And so um, one of the things that's really important to me this year is helping bridge the gap that they have and bring clinical trials to the North. And there are things from the decentralized clinical trial model that we can use like telehealth and that type of thing to, to be able to, to do this. And so, um, so I think that if we start with communities like that and bring clinical trials to them, don't just do it for the sake of bringing clinical trials to them, but have something where we've said, okay, there's high rates of diabetes um, in those communities. How can we help diabetes or op opioid abuse um, or cancers that are higher rates in um, indigenous populations than other populations of people? But um, go to those communities, talk to the health centers, talk to the leaders of the community and say, we have these clinical trials and we would like to offer them to um, this community. We will be able to get lots of patients that you'll be surprised how willing they are to um, and how grateful they will be to have those opportunities. Now, there is a lot of history that comes involved in the indigenous population and clinical trials, especially with the Canadian government um, and mm. a very tarnished history. So it's trust lacking. But um, but I'm from there and I can go to my own family and friends yeah. and, and people and say, hey, here's a clinical trial that I think would really help us. And there's ways that we can bring these trials to these communities and improve diversity and um, be able to not only accelerate the change of the decentralized clinical trial model, but also improve diversity. And um, so, yes, so that is something I'm working on right now to be able to do. Um, but the next step from getting a patient in a new population of people is not to just open the door, but it's also to expand the patient experience and make sure that the experience is a really good one and effective and then that they are grateful down the road, not regretful that they signed up for a trial. If I'm to summarize so what I'm hearing uh, today is really we should pay attention to the entire experience from the first conversation around the clinical trial, uh, how we present this clinical trial, how do we uh, make sure that this clinical trial is, uh, is something that people can benefit from, from this point to the very end when People actually, there is no end if you ask me, because even after the clinical trial, these can be natural champions of clinical trials to other people. And if they have uh, a bad experience, they won't be advertising these clinical trials, and that will contribute to whole communities being closed to, to, to the whole idea. Um, so, what, what you're saying is that we need to pay attention to the entire experience. Uh, but I'll not only think about the, the experience in the clinical trial, but also what does it mean for, for these people's lives? Exactly. Uh, which is a very powerful statement. At the same time, um, it brings even more complexity to, to the way you, you think about clinical trials. But at the end of the day, if we want to be successful, we really need to identify these, these things that we can be more impactful with. Uh, and maybe identify which are the things in people's life, in these patients' life, that we can impact in a way that um, they can be engaged 
and and it's satisfied at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. There's so much we can do by focusing on the person's lives and the and dissecting the patient experience. And I love that you specifically mentioned past the clinical trial itself, because can you imagine a world where we are bringing in people that have never had access to clinical trials before, and now we're doing that, bringing them through the clinical trials and then continuing to improve our clinical trial process by bringing their voices back into um, the future clinical trials. So the first ones, like let's say today we start a clinical trial in Inuvik, Northwest Territories, Canada. And um, those first few patients that come through are going to have an experience that will then be able to give us feedback to improve the next ones and the next ones and the next ones. Before you know it, we won't even be talking about diversity because it'll just be a way of life for us. Well, I hope that uh, we are all contributing to such a world where we make clinical trials more patient-friendly, site-friendly, friendly to all stakeholders. And so more people join like clinical trials because we need clinical trials. If we want to see innovation in medicine and treatments and in in healthcare, we need clinical trials. So I hope that there are more people like you who are inspired by their own experience, hopefully not like so, yeah, difficult experience, but still going back uh, to their lives and, and contributing with their passion, with their know-how and with their energy to make uh, the clinical research industry as a whole more efficient. Thank you so much for this inspiring conversation, Esther. Thanks, Maya. It was a pleasure. Hope you enjoyed listening to Trials with Maya Z. If you're interested to hear more about how clinical trials can serve patients globally, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.